0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter, with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash Ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland. No owl today, I'm afraid, and that's because I'm on my own in Dresden in Germany. Uh, and I'm here with Jens Weiner, who a uh, Dr. Jens Wehner, I should say. Um, and um, I'm here at the um, Militär Historisch Museum, the Military History Museum, and it's a fabulous museum, I've got to say. It really is. It's, it's so brilliantly done. It's one of my favourite museums ever. Um, But Jens has just completed um, his doctrinal work and published it on the Luftwaffe, and particularly the Luftwaffe fighter arm. And you've got some quite different and original... Research and thoughts on all this, Jens. And I'm absolutely thrilled that you're talking to us on the podcast again. I mean, we've been kind of talking about this for quite a long time, but much better to be doing it face-to-face. We did.
2: Yes, already. We we talked already about the Battle of Stalingrad. Yes. Yeah, but I think this topic is also very interesting for your listeners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because, I don't know. I mean, people who are interested in the Second World War, they're always interested in Spitfires and Messerschmitts. I mean... Yeah, That's an entry point.
2: It's, it's one of the cores of Second World War talent, I think. It's, yeah,
0: definitely,
2: definitely. Yeah. But
0: my take on it was that that although there was general, um, uh, so so the Luftwaffe is announced in the spring of 1935, and obviously it's been worked on before then. And the chief of staff of the, of the Luftwaffe in the first uh, when it first emerges mm. is General Walter Weaver. Yes, and and Weber is very into bombing yeah. uh, and creating a what we would call a strategic bomber force. I kind of assume that that after he died in June 1936 and Yeshanek takes over as as, um, as chief of staff after Kasserin briefly takes it, that... that Actually, the Luftwaffe was more of what we would call a tactical air force there to su- provide close air support to the ground troops. But but you don't think so. You've, you've got a different take on this. Yes,
2: of course. They had a close air support uh, component. So part of it It was. So if you if you take, for instance, the Schlachtflieger, yeah, of course, they were supposed to support the HAIR, the ground attack forces of Germany, mm-hmm. the, the land forces. But the mainstay of the Luftwaffe, I would say, were the twin-engine bombers. Right. And obviously, those bombers were not very suited to support the hair. So what were they planned for? And I would suggest, and I, I came to the thesis, that the twin-engine bombers were for the so-called fight against the power sources of the enemy, which means... Lines of supply. Lines of supplies, fabrication sites, so so factories, railways, yeah. Infrastructure in general, military infrastructure, headquarters and so on. Yeah. And I think those are this is the mainstay of the German air armament before the war and this is also the the main mainstay of the doctrine of the German Air Force in World War Two. So it's it's number one priority Mm. of the Luftwaffe Mm. above everything else. Mm. Is bombing. Is bombing, yeah. And if you read the documents, uh, not only the LDV16, which is the central manual for the doctrine of the Luftwaffe, but also uh, some other documents you will see you see it already in the term because in the German Luftwaffe the bomber is not called bomber. It's called Kampfflugzeug. Mm. Means fighting airplane. So oh, yeah. they so they are doing the fight. Yes. 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 And the and the, and the Stuka is the Sturzkampfflugzeug. So in English, this means dive bomber, which is correct. Yes. But Sturzkampfflugzeug means this is the this is the fighting airplane which does the dive. So, <laughs> so they are doing the dive. Yeah. And and the Luftwaffe doctrine clearly says attack is everything, for defense is nothing. And also, it was split because it was said. Fighters are for defense and bombers are for attacking. So, meaning, and if you say attacking is the most important thing we got to do, yep. then of course the bomber or the Kampfflugzeug is the most important thing we have yeah. to do, the task we want to do. Oh, the, the whole
0: mindset of the German way of war is to attack. Is to attack. You, you attack with the Schwerpunkt and you yeah. have yeah. a concentration of force and you overwhelm yeah. your enemy incredibly quickly. Kind of defense doesn't even come into it, does it? Yeah. Not, not in the first part of the war, not really.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course, but but I would say the Luftwaffe is in this point more radical than the hare. Uh, yeah, the hare of course, knows defense of course, it prefers the attack. Yes. But I would say the Luftwaffe really didn't like the, the defense. Yeah. And when it comes to the fighters, which was the main topic of my PhD, then you have to say the fighters are even in defense mostly second rank. Yeah. Because take for instance the Luftgau. I don't know if you know the Luftgau. Yes. Yeah, it was the territorial uh, structure of the Luftwaffe, mm-hmm. for the Heer it was the Wehrkreis, yes. for the Luftwaffe it's the Luftgau. Yep. Yep. Okay. And the Luftgau was always commanded by an officer from the AAA, from the Flak guns. And they commanded the fighters hmm. before the war, until 1939. Right. And of course, this didn't work very well. No. And already in 1939, in the first months of the war, they had to change it. Yeah, they had to to, to, to somehow uh, crush the structures and restructure it new so that the fighters will, will get more ability to be free to operate and so on. And the reason for this is the British bombing campaign in 1939 against the Coastline of Germany yeah. in the North Sea. Flying it to Dill yeah. yeah. and then whatever. Yeah, and, 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 and the flag commander in this area he openly uh, confessed, um, Oh, I don't know how to use the fighters, so better I let them free. <laughs> 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 you know? And so this is the first point when uh, development was introduced that later led to the so called Jagddivisionen. So the, the, fighter the fighter divisions, and the Yag Corps in the end, yeah. If it comes to the D-Day and the Normandy, but you see in the doctrinal mind of the Luftwaffe, when it comes to manual, to, to to the image of air war they had in their mind, the fighters were not uh, the, the major important force. It wasn't even in the air defense option. Well, I, that's absolutely fascinating.
0: I, I mean. You always want more than one fighter plane because you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You don't want to kind of just bank on one fighter plane. And I always thought it was interesting that at the, the same time that the, the Messerschmitt 109 is being developed, Heinkel's developing the 112, and the 112 is interesting because it's it's got a wide undercarriage. You know, the, 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 the for those who don't know, that's the legs with the wheels on. Um, it's wide. It's inward um, retracting, not... Outward retracting, like the one hundred and nine, which has a comparatively narrow width and undercarriage, and that makes it less stable on the ground. So the wider the undercarriage, the the more stable it is on the ground, less accidents, and so on. So the Hunker one hundred and twelve has that, and it's and it's favour. It has incredible range for for a fighter plane, like seven hundred and eighty miles, whatever that is in like twelve hundred kilometers or something, which is huge for a fighter, single engine fighter plane. Way more than anything else. Its its rate of climb is. Pretty much the same as the yeah. 109. It has a good dive rate. It's it's well armed. It's got elliptical wings, a bit like the Spitfire. Um, it's a perfectly decent aircraft. I remember talking to um, Eric uh, Winkle-Brown, who mm-hmm. is a hugely celebrated yeah, test, pilot. test yeah. pilot, and he said he much preferred flying the, the Heinkel 112 to the, the 109
2: and, because of visibility. And you know who did also do that? Adolf Galland and Wolfgang Falk. Is that so? They both uh, said, "Oh yeah, um, the Heingel 112 was better than the BF 109," but there must be some corruption in the R- R- RLM in the RLM, yeah, because uh, the Heinkel 112 was the better plane. And if you look at the technical data, uh, I think it's quite obvious that this was really the case. This is not only an let's say a verdict of fighter pilots who had some subjects. Um, because um, the Heinkel One One Two not only had the elliptical wing, yep. it also had the bigger wing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in in the first version of the Heinkel One One Two, had a wing. I think it's twenty two square meters, something right. like this. Right. So this is more or less like the Spitfire. Yeah. Big wing. Yes. And the One O Nine has a small wing with sixteen um, point four or so square meters, but both have the same speed. Yes and the Heidel is at the same speed nearly the same uh, climbing capabilities yes and could outturn the 109 and it also had the better armament because it had already a cannon which wasn't the case with the BF 109 and in Spain a pilot killed uh, some Soviet tanks uh, with it, with the cannon of the Heide. It was the only Heidel. was yeah uh, he was called he was called um, Dosenöffner, right? Yeah, büxenöffner, because he, you know, uh, and this was his nickname. Yeah, right, right, so, right. so they had already the canon and what happened was when the decision was um, uh, uh, when the decision was made for the 109, that Heinkel, of course, was very disappointed. Right. And he came, he he went to, to Udet, and he said. Oh, I don't want to give up. I want to give you a better fighter and Udet said, no, we don't need a better fighter because the 109, the 109 will have with the next engine, which is the 601. Yep. Yeah, db the 601, 601. 601. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Udet said, um, no, we don't need because with this engine, the 109 will reach 550 kilometers per hour or so, which it did already. And with the next engine, it will reach 600 kilometers per hour, also, which it did. Also, but Heinz said, "Okay, so I will give you 700 kilometers per hour." And what he did with the 112, which is really really interesting, he cutted the wings. So if you look at the 112 V1, mm-hmm. 22 square meters, and if you look at the 112 V3, I think it's only 17 square meters. Wow! So more or less like the 109. And with this wing. <coughs> From the data that are available still, you can conclude it's even faster than the 109
0: wow. with the same engine. Uh, I'm really pleased you're championing the Heinkel 112 because there was some other historian, aviation historian, who said, no, 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 the Heinkel 112 really wasn't that good. Anyway, and I thought, well, I'm sure he knows more about it than me. But so that that's really, I've always thought it's a very, very good-looking aircraft, and I've always thought it's an interesting, and, and I assumed that it was petty corruption and, Goering just preferring Willy Messerschmitt that enabled, that, that led the Luftwaffe to, to pair the 109 with the 110. But again, you've got a different view on that. You think the 110 was the primary fighter rather than the 109 in a way.
2: Yeah, because the Luftwaffe had an air combat image, as I would call it, in German Luftkampfbild. Yep. Um, how should a, Luft, a Luftkampf and air combat in the future be? And they assumed we need firepower and speed. Yeah. And this is the 110 and not the 109. Right. Because the 109 also has some firepower and obviously speed, but it wasn't very agile, had a high agility uh, in comparison with the 110. But this wasn't seen as very important right. yeah, for a fighter. It was more important. <laughs> And to have a long range as the 110 had it was more important to have firepower and it was more important to have speed
0: So what are they imagining
2: that the ME-110 is going to be doing? In uh, first the M110 should, uh, be, should um, um, be in the defense against enemy bombers yeah? with, uh, with greater firepower with the same speed like the 109 and I had a better ability to kill the bombers but then, because it's got cannons and machine guns and yeah, and it also has the turret, the backward turret. Yes, and they also should fire. And it's longer range. Yeah, yeah, the range, not in the beginning, right? Really in the beginning, but in 1938, it becomes obvious that there could be an air war with England. Right. And there, Göring released an order where he said, um, "I order to develop the 110." for long range so that it can fly over the whole British island you know so and there it became the long range fighter in 1938 and then it turned out it wasn't good enough anymore because uh, the long range had some consequences for the hull and it became too heavy and then Jeschonek said why is it so heavy (laughs) Uh obviously he completely forget um, that Göring order to give it a long range and Now it's more heavy than it should be, maybe. So you you see there are some different developments on the 110, (laughs) but it's always seen as the most important fighter plane of the future. And um, there's really one stunning thing from Ernst Udet, the General Luftzeugmeister, who after the invasion of Poland and the end of 1939 said maybe we should produce only 110s and not... And no 109s anymore. So
0: they begin the war with the ME110 as the primary fighter plane, not the ME109. That's basically what you're saying.
2: They wanted to, but but you have to say the 110 was not really available. They only had 100 or right, so. Right, there's not enough so, of them. So there were a lot of Zerstörer units yes. who flew the 109. Because they have not enough 110s.
0: Okay, but the aim is to
1: have. Yeah, it, the it, aim is to have. That's that. the intention.
2: Yeah, and, and you can see it if you look at the production in 1940. The relation between 109 and 110 is the best for the 110 over the whole war. Yeah. Right. It's nearly right. 1 to 1. It's 1. 1.5 <laughs> to 1 also. Yeah. yeah. So, so you see, during the Battle of Britain, well, let's say before the Battle of Britain, the 110 was at the peak of their. Assessment of their uh, how it was appreciated by yeah. the German yeah. Air Force.
0: Yeah. So, if you're a young German and an, an aspiring pilot, what, what do you think the most coveted plane would be to fly? So it's, it's 1939. I'm in I'm in the Luftwaffe. I'm mm-hmm. I'm 20 years old. I've just got my pilot. You know, I'm I'm doing my fly, my flying training. I, I what, would, what do I want to be? Do I want to be a? Do I want to be in a Bomber or do I want to be in a
2: Messerschmitt 110? I mean, it depends on the human, but I think it's more or less the fighter, 109, and the Stuka. Right. Yeah. That's the most prestigious. I I, I, I assume so. But uh, the bomber force is quite uh, has a quite high impact in the propaganda. Right. Yeah, if you look at the movies that were produced at this yeah. time, like Kampfgeschwader Lützow or so, there the bomber was in the focus, not the fighter. Right. I think we have no big fighter propaganda movie in Germany during the war. Wow, I don't wow. know one. I know some for the bombers. There's also one about the Stukas. It's called Stukas. Yes, uh, but I don't know one about the fighters.
0: Well, actually, now I'm thinking about it, it. Was that there was that song called Bomben on on mm-hmm. England, mm-hmm. and then
2: there was a there was a book.
0: Of the same title, I think. I was sort of yeah, like a yeah. There
2: several, several things. Also, a little uh, board game and so yes. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of this. It's, it's all about the, bombing. Yeah, it's all you're, about you're so right. and also the Stukas were in the focus of the propaganda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But not yeah. Uh, the but the fighters were, of course, important for producing heroes. You know, with the mm-hmm. Knights Cross and these yeah. young-looking guys, because the bomber crews sometimes were a little bit more older and yeah. you know, and and more. The, officers also and there was some young pilots which were a little bit easy and so on they were of of course a good object for the propaganda but they were not in the focus of military thinking that's the difference you know.
0: And you've dispelled another myth for me because I always thought that the Zestora was called the Zestora because Göring named it and he he just liked it but you're saying that's not the case. It wasn't that wasn't to do
2: with yeah, Girl I, I have grand say, names. Yeah, this I, was... I have to say I have no proof where this name comes from. But I have to say in this in the time that, when the Zerstörer was named, we have a lot of navy ter- terms in the Luftwaffe, like mm. Luftkreuzer, so air cruiser or something like this, or right. the Luftmeer, so the um, uh, air sea or something like this. And so for me, it's more probable that this name came from the Navy class, Destroyer, right. Zerstörer. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see the bombers as your cruisers and battleships, yeah. and you're seeing your Zerstörer as a as, as the equivalent of a destroyer, you yeah. of an escort, yeah. an armed, yeah. agile yeah. fighter escort.
2: Yeah, and, and the 109s in this case would be also a little bit smaller. Like a corvette or a frigate or Yeah, or torpedo boat. Or torpedo, boat or torpedo yeah. yeah. Or something like this. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I would assume like this because the whole terminology of this time, if you if you read a uh, theorist like Giulio head and also some Luftwaffe papers, it's more or less like um, like a navy fight. You know, they talk, for instance, about the breitseitengefecht. So you know, from the navy, the board side um, mm-hmm. uh, guns. You know, like the sail ships, they have a. The, the whole side of the ship is firing yes. that's what they assume for Broad an air battle in the future broadside yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so Gefecht is the German term for this you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so when, to, to, when, does, when does it change I mean
0: when do they realize that actually the, the Messerschmitt 110 is not quite the leading fighter plane they wanted to be
2: I think the realization is in a lesser way after the battle of Britain because after the Battle of Britain, they discuss what do we do with the Zerstörer. And uh, Kesselring, who was the head of Luftflotte 2, asked uh, the Jaffus, the Jagdfliegerführer, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, it's the fighter commanders of the yeah, was, yeah. One was uh, Theo Osterkamp, mm-hmm. and the other was General von Yeah. And they had a mixed view on it, while Osterkamp had the op- opinion. Ah, the, 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 the Zerstörer still works for us. We have to be more carefully, and we have to give them better engines like the 601N engine, the 601 n engine. Um, von Düring, Which is the next generation of Daimler Benz yeah. engines coming through. Yeah, correct. Um, uh, von During had the opinion that ah, the Zerstörer won't make it anymore in the way we, we imagined. So we should maybe mix it with 109s or. Just, just use it on in, in in the air where the enemy is not so contestive, so contest contest the air, yeah, so in, on the lesser important air uh, uh, space, and um, and Kesselring, for me, it seems he didn't understand it at all. Whether right. why the Zerstörer was a failure, whether the arguments of the of the Ja-füs, and so he did something like, a Salomonic Verdict. Yafu's yeah. being the fighter leaders. The fighter leaders, yeah. Uh, so he. he the Jagdführer, is that what a stands Jagdfliegerführer for? Jagdfliegerführer, or, or, Jagdführer in yeah. the short way. Yeah, Jagdfliegerführer. Yeah. Or, uh, fighter leader. Yeah. Something like this. And there was Yafu I and Yafu 2. Mm-hmm. Every Luftflotte had a Yafu. Right. And the Yafu was only an invention from the stress in 1939 made by the British Air Force yep. from the campaign, so, okay, and point is, Kesselring just mixed it up somehow, you t- took a little bit of this opinion, a little bit of this opinion, but the main solution for the 110 was not to dissolve the Zerstörer, but to produce a better type of airplane, and this was the 210. Right, you know, this was the This was solution. an upgrade
0: to the this was a, a, a an improvement to the 110.
2: It was seen as an improvement to the 110 which should be better in any case it should also fulfill more roles as yes. a multifunctional plane. Yeah, but it should be better and we know of course it wasn't.
0: Well, it's a completely almost an entirely different design altogether, wasn't It it, it
2: was a great technical disaster. For yeah. the Luftwaffe. Oh, oh, why was it? What did measurement get wrong? Because they wanted too much. They wanted they wanted something which the technology couldn't give it. Couldn't right. give, yeah. Because they because they didn't reflect about their doctrine and the failures of their doctrine, uh, because they assumed it's the technology. We our airplanes are too bad.
0: So is that it? So so they, they get to the end of the Battle of Britain, and mm. obviously. Hmm. It hasn't gone terribly well. Mm-hmm. So, is there a, is there a kind of okay? We need to completely rethink this, or, or does that does that not happen?
2: They don't rethink this. I have a paper of the general staff of the one um, t, meaning. Uh, one T. This is the head of the technical detachment of the general staff right. of the German Air Force, and this document is from uh, fall '41, yeah. where he says, "Okay, what do we need for the air war of the future?" And there he says, "Yeah." When so is this April '41? No, in fall, and fall '41. So September, September or October. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, um, in, in October or September, I think it's September 41. Mm. And of course, they have the airborne, the Soviet Union, yes. where he clearly, clearly says um, the, so the Soviet new Union has the numbers, we have the quality. Mm. But our main enemy in the air is England. And to beat England in the future, we need um, um, better tactics and better technology. But he does not say we need a better doctrine or we need to change our doctrine. Because it's always about tactics and technology. And he also assumes, which I would say is a little bit wrong. (laughs) Uh, Let's say it like this, uh, because he assumes still we have the superiority about the English guys. But this can be contested, especially when the USA is into the war. And so, we need to fix our superiority more with better tactics and better technology. Right.
0: So at this point, it's not about numbers, it's not about a completely… it's
2: not about changing tactics, it's it's about… It's also about changing tactics. It is about changing tactics. But not about changing doctrines. Not about changing doctrines. But if you are honest, if you look at the paper and if you look at the whole thinking and acting of the Luftwaffe at this point of time, it's all about technology, so techni- te- tactics weren't that important for them. And, and yet the
0: technology isn't massively improving, is it? I wouldn't you know, say you're, so. You're creating, you know, Messerschmitt's creating the ME-210, which is a, never, I mean, it, it does seem, come to light, but it's a disaster.
2: Yeah, the problem is, if you look, if you look especially at the fighter planes, take for instance the focke 190. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fogel- That's a pretty good plane, isn't it? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Because it has, it had the aim to fly seven hundred kilometers per hour, which it didn't all over the war. It never did. It never did. Yeah, it never did. Um, so that's over four hundred miles an hour. I think it's more. It's it's like the Mustang. Yeah. And, but they uh, had the plan that the focke wolf in nineteen forty-one could reach these speed. Yes. Yeah, and this never happened. So and um so its speed was comparable to the one hundred nine, uh, the climbing capabilities were inferior to the one oh nine, it could not outturn a one oh nine, uh the armament was better, its handling were much better, yeah. And it had a better better side for the pilots. And retracting on the carriage. Yeah, but the fun thing is I checked the accident rates of 109 and 10, 190 yeah. in 1944. Yeah. From January up to October. Right. So when the training of the Luftwaffe pilots was was already quite bad. Yeah. And it was the same. Really? Yeah. So it made no difference, it made no difference. Even there were some months where the 190, uh, 90, yeah had a higher accident rate than the 109. Wow. In the, in the, the Lackgeschwaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason why the 109, from my perspective, has such a bad reputation uh, for landing gear and so on is because it was mostly used by training units. The 190 was never used by training units. Yeah. In, in great masses, only some minor examples. Yeah. And for those of you
0: who don't, don't appreciate this, there aren't any two-seaters in these days. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so as as a young pilot, you would go through your training, you'd get your wings mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, and then you'd train on your specific type. But the first time you get into a Spitfire mm-hmm. or, a, or a Focke-Wulf 190 or a Measuresmith 109, you're on your own. Yeah, You know, someone can, can talk you through all the dials and all the, 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 you know, the cockpit and tell you what to do and say, oh, Make sure you watch out for this because it's got a nasty bite when you stall or whatever it might be. But ultimately, you've just got to pray mm-hmm. and hope for the best.
2: Yeah, you do. And and for for me, very interesting was to ask a uh, former recon pilot of the Luftwaffe. Mm-hmm. And he flew Henschel 126. Yes. And afterwards, he flew BF 109. Yes. And afterwards, he flew the 190. <coughs> Right. And his only landing accident was with the 190. Is that so? And he hated the 190 for its landing behavior. What, and what was wrong with its landing behavior? Yeah, because the 109 had a tendency to to fall through you know but yeah. I mean, uh, to, to stall a little bit in, in yeah. the landing approach and this was a problem which was also researched by the Luftwaffe scientific wow. uh, thing but this doesn't mean the 190 was uh, worse than the 109 in landing it does. it just means it also had its problems with that yeah you know So. gosh
0: I really had no idea about that, that's yeah. that's and, so and,
2: that and 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 I asked him and he gave me this hint and then I thought Okay, so I have to look at the statistics, what they are saying. And I couldn't find any proof for this thesis when it comes to the Yachtgeschwader in 1944. And I think forty-four is really a good year to check this. Yeah, yeah.
0: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So how does the fighter arm develop in the war? Because mm-hmm. uh, it always strikes me that, that you know, they're the kind of among the finest young men in, in Germany in the late 1930s and up to 1940. You know, these are, there's Galland and Marseilles and, mm-hmm. you know, all these people and Novotny and so on. Yeah. And, you know, these are the pinups and the heroes yeah. and they're getting the Knights nice Crosses. But the then perfect. they're just completely put upon, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're completely overused. Yeah, they
2: are completely overused. They they were verheizt, as we say in German, means to throw them into an oven and right. fire them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because there was no there were no reserves of pilots. Or, no. or, or, or not enough. Or yeah. airplanes, yeah. And so and so it uh, was really a stress test for the pilots, and many of them were abgeflogen. Means something like um, flew away, right. something like this. Let's say it like this. Means they were nervous. They had a nervous unrest or something like this. Many of them drank a lot of alcohol to fight this yes. nervous unrest, also. No? no. Well, there's not.
0: I mean, you know, one of one of the things I think you can say in the favor of um, of uh, Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding is that he was always very concerned about the welfare of his pilots. So. Even at the height of the Battle of Britain, you you know he insisted that everyone had, um, you know, twenty four hours off a week and forty eight hours off every three weeks. Mm. Um, that you had double the number of pilots yeah. to keep twelve in the air, so that you would have twenty two to twenty four pilots in a squadron to keep twelve airborne. Which meant that no one was expected to fly more than twice a day, and absolutely four the four times a day that at the, at the yeah. absolute tops. Yeah. Of which two of those four would probably be X raids, which is mm. raids which turn out not to be bombers after all. Yeah. You know, so false, false raids. Whereas even in the Battle of Britain, you've got Luftwaffe pilots flying seven times a day. Yeah. And, you know, I remember talking to um, Heil Hermann, um, who was obviously a, he was a Junkers 88 pilot uh, flying out of Schiffel in, um, in, in Holland in um, the Battle of Britain. And by the time he had um, he, he he was taking off from chiffle in October 1940, mm-hmm. um, uh, British bombers came over. A splinter hit one of his tires on his Junkers. They slewed off, and he cracked his head. And he woke up in hospital. And, and by that, I think that was his, like his 96th bombing raid, mm-hmm. not yeah. including yeah, yeah. Spain. Yeah, You know, already by that stage, yeah. you know, so much is expected. I and mean, obviously, he's a bomber pilot, not a fighter pilot. But but there was a lot expected, and the, these guys—I mean—they did get leave, yeah. But it was all a bit ad hoc. There was no kind of pattern to it. No. And if 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 pilots were needed to be to stay in their staffel and and keep flying, that's what they did. Yeah. And at the end of every day, they're expected to write reports and
2: you know discuss
0: tactics. There's there's no downtime.
2: There's no downtime, or let, let's say it's so not enough. Yeah, because in the beginning of the war, or in the first phase of the war, first year, second year, it maybe worked somehow because there were some fighting pauses. Yeah. yeah. There were some, let's say, in the winter of 40, 41 or so, the fighters had not so much to do; they could get a little bit rest. But when the war worked on, they didn't had. Yeah, they were just like. They were every time in battle when they were uh, available, yeah. And um, just look at Eric Hartmann. Eric Hartmann, I think he joined the front in September '42, or so, and he flew 1,400 Sorties. That's just
0: amazing. So for those who don't know, a Sortie is an individual, one man's Mm -hmm. combat mission. Yeah. A combat flight. Yeah, and
2: it's said he had over 800 times berührung, so more or less dogfight with the enemy 800 times it's that yeah
0: so so if you think it's 365 days in a year
2: yeah and if you if you see he joined the front only in the in the autumn of um, 1942 yeah so this is only 43 44 45 let's say Three years. It's incredible
0: because people say, you know, so say, well, how come you know you've got these fighter races like Bibi Hartman with 352 yeah. um, victories to their name, or Gunter Wall, I think he's third in the list with 275. Yeah. And I think the the leading Allied scorer is Johnny Johnson with 38 and a half. Yeah. That that's quite a difference. And why is that? Well, there's two reasons for it. There's a different accounting system for how you score victories. Yeah. Um, there's a. I think I'm right in saying that there is a. You know, once you have an expert, mm-hmm. as they're known, a kind of sort of the, the leading gun mm-hmm. in the squadron or the or the or the or the um, gishwada, the group, um, it's a job of everyone else to protect him while he gets on with the process of shooting, and and in a way, that's quite a sensible idea because shooting down enemy, another. Aircraft is very very difficult, and not a lot of people mastered it. Yeah, and and the vast majority of aerial victories were achieved by a very very small proportion of fighter pilots. Yeah,
2: this is also true for the Luftwaffe.
0: Yes, so so the Luftwaffe very sensibly then focuses on the guys who are good shots rather than remaining this kind of equal
2: team, yeah. which is more the kind of British way. Yeah, in forty two, there is even an order by the General der Jagdflieger, so General yes. of the Fighters, who's and the order says, or or said, um, we want to sort out the fighter pilots with no kills. Right. And and imagine that they at this time—that's like eighty-five percent of them. Yeah, and, and they had already a shortage somehow mm-hmm. of fighter pilots in forty-two. That's they insane. Already, yeah, I I mean, as far as I know, they did it. They didn't do it. No. So it was just an order, but never really fulfilled. Right. so. but think about the mind of this yeah, yeah. yeah so they had the assumption that only a fighter pilot with high um, uh, uh, kill rates uh, is a good fighter pilot yeah. and the rest has to be gone to the Stukas or whatever this is about that's about. ridiculous yeah this is ridiculous and, um, and when it comes to Erich Hartmann um, it's interesting to see I compared Erich Hartmann's statistics that are available with some western allied fighter pilots and Erich Hartmann uh, killed an enemy airplane in every fourth sortie. Yeah? And there are some Western Allied fighter pilots who had uh, the same ratio with three, meaning every third sortie they killed an enemy plane. How yeah. interesting. So, so,
0: can, you so think, can you remember who they were?
2: I think it was Johnson. Who is Johnson?
0: Oh, Johnny Johnson. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think
2: it was. So, funny. this is my point. So, so the other yeah, is- that's, that's what I wanted to, to fulfill. Yeah. yeah. Because, uh, so meaning, Erich Hartmann was not very efficient. Please don't get me wrong, he was a very good fighter pilot. There's no question about this. But he was not very efficient. He was so successful because he was very cautious. Yeah, because if you look at Günther Rall, who was in the same squadron also on the Eastern Front, he had a kill in every second sortie. Wow. But günter Reil was badly wounded two times. Right. Erich Hartmann never. Right. See? And the highest uh, ranking, or not the highest ranking, but the highest the, the highest, or the most successful German ace that was killed in World War Two was Otto Kittel. Oh. Yeah, with 267 kills he had on the claim list. And um, he he was also much more efficient than Erich Hockner. So, so I um, so my suspicion is that um, fighter aces that were not so much cautious, meaning more efficient, had a higher chance of getting killed. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And. Because um, they're more gung ho. They're more. Yeah. And they're, they're getting closer and take more risks. And there is even a study. Uh, from nine, 2019, from four scientific researchers in economy studies, and they researched the risk ability of German fighter pilots with night courses. So, what does this Night's mean? Knights courses. Knights courses, yeah, Ritterkreuze. Yeah. And what does this mean? This means they calculated that whenever a squadron or something like this, as, and and the, there was a pilot who was able to get the Knight's Cross. The others would fly more risky. Uh, because they, they, they were eager Yeah, they were eager to yeah. get uh, for the one. Yeah? Wow. So you see, dealing with risk yeah. seemed to be a great big deal for fighter pilots. Right, right, right. And Erich Hartmann at the Eastern Front <clears throat> had uh, hunting grounds, let's say it like this, but he could had the choice to avoid a combat if it was not really fitting for him. And I read the memoirs of a Soviet fighter ace, Voroshetin, who was two times hero of the Soviet Union, and he uh, explained from 1943 that the Soviet air forces had already the air superiority, which could be the case because the German air force was very weak at the Eastern Front at this time. But he also said, we had quite high losses by German surprise attacks by German fighters. yeah, They were coming out of the mm-hmm. sun, shooting, and away. And this was half of our losses, only such surprise attacks. Yeah. They couldn't really um, defend against us, <coughs> escort Stomowicz mm-hmm. or something like this, Yeah, but we had high losses by such surprise attacks by the German aces. You know? is not interesting. Because the aces could choose how to attack and when to attack. Yeah, of course. And I think this is not every time the case in the Western Front, especially no. when it comes to 1944.
0: Or of course, you've got to respond to the bombers coming over and the fighters. Yeah, and yeah. the Of course. But the point I was going to make is one of the other reasons why um, Allied aces <laughs> don't have such high scores is because they're not on the front line for so long. You know, you yeah. do a stint and then you go off and become an instructor. Completely. You know, you're not flying as many sorties. You're only flying kind of once, twice a day, absolute max you know, not even once a day, half the time. You know, so you're not flying so much. And the only time someone gets close to that rate, really, is someone like George Birmingham over Malta, Mm -hmm. who gets (laughs) 30-odd in a couple of months. Okay. Which is a very high rate. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the intensity of the air combat and how much is expected of um, RAF fighter pilots operating from Malta in the summer of, spring and summer of 1942. But... A six-month tour, which was the normal standard, was reduced on Malta to three months because it was recognized that it was so incredibly tough and you were having to fight more than you would normally fight. But the Luftwaffe don't have that, that break. They don't have that that check. So you just keep flying and you just keep flying. And, and you know, we were talking yesterday, were not we, Jens, and um, I, I mentioned Heinz Nocher, um, who is a fighter pilot on the Western Front. He just flies and flies and flies and the only time he gets a break is when he's wounded Mm -hmm. and he goes off and he goes back and sees his wife and his little baby daughter and and he recovers from his wounds and then back he goes to the fighter squadron takes it on again and off he goes and gets shot down again and so the sort of cycle is repeated and somehow some way he's still alive at the end of the second world war but he shouldn't be because he's he's shot down like seven or nine times or something and his his diaries are incredible because regardless of what you might think of him, you, you can't help but feel sympathetic to the plight of that. You can see in him that kind of the rise and fall of the fighter arm in the in the Luftwaffe. You know, there he is in 1939, excited about joining the Luftwaffe. In the summer of 1940, he's going to flying training school and he's a proper Nazi and he's so behind it all. And isn't it great we're winning and it's also fantastic and, you know, Gosh, we're top dogs. And slowly gets chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, mm. chipped away, chipped away. By the beginning of 1944, he's just absolutely finished. And it's so clear he's suffering from what we would now call combat fatigue. Yeah, and or, or upgeflogen. Right.
2: Upgeflogen in terms of this time. And it's just not mm. recognized. Yeah.
0: It's like tough. Just keep going. Yeah, you have
2: a little bit the same with Julius Meinberg, which uh, wrote a really interesting... Julius
0: Meinberg. Yeah. Yeah, Julius M-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Meinberg.
2: Yeah. So Julius Meinberg was a fighter pilot who got the Knight's Cross in 1944 Right. And um, when you look at the photograph of the uh, uh, ceremony when he gets his Knight's Cross, he doesn't seem to be that happy. <laughs> and if you read his memoirs, I think for me the impression was he was already he had already a bad combat fatigue, which was called abgeflogen up- Right. In German terms. Yeah, because he had a long war, he fought in the Battle of Britain, yes. he fought at the so called Canal Front, Channel Front in yeah. Forty One, Forty Two, he fought over North Africa, he fought against the flying fortresses of the Americans, and he had some really bad dogfights with American and English right. guys over the Western Front in Forty four. It's it's
0: just relentless, isn't it? There is there is no end in sight. Mm. I mean, it's very interesting because there's, there's a number of Battle of Britain um, fighter pilots who never see active service again. Yeah, they they get right. You've done your bit and move in to be an instructor, and they stay an instructor for the rest of the war. You know, the, the, it's just inconceivable that an RAF pilot or a, or a USAAF pilot yeah. would fly. Oh the extent to which a Luftwaffe fighter pilot is expected to fly. And of course it's completely counterproductive. But it's also indicative, isn't it, that the Germany in the Second World War just doesn't have enough of anything. And it takes me back to the kind of point I've made a number of times, which is that, you know, if one thinks about why Germany quits in the First World War, it's because they're not gonna win and they've run out of money. And and that same scenario has reached Germany, way before nineteen forty-five, yeah, of course. But gotta keep going, you know. German will, you know, we will mm-hmm. will it that it will happen, you know. And, and Hitler always has this view that it's going to be Armageddon or it's going to be the thousand-year Reich, but there's nothing in between. And and it's just, it, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, you read, you know, I've obviously read Mackie Steinhoff's memoir. Yeah about his time in the Mediterranean, particularly when he's on yeah. Sicily. Mm. I mean, even when he's in Tunisia in the beginning of nineteen forty-three, he's saying this is absolutely desperate. And I think I think the Luftwaffe the Luftwaffe alone, forget the Regia uh, Aeronautica, mm. the Italian Air Force, the Luftwaffe alone, this is something like two thousand six hundred aircraft destroyed, gone, captured, whatever, mm. just mm. completely mm. irreversibly written off the slate between November mm. nineteen forty-two. May 1943 and a further three and a half thousand by end of September 1943. I mean, that's 6,000 aircraft
2: in the Mediterranean. I know only in the Mediterranean because you have to count the Eastern Front and the Channel Front and and, and, and the air defense of the Reich. And um, if if you look at 44, it's even get worse. Yeah. Yeah. In 44. They lost over 3,000 fighter planes. Only fighter planes yes. in five months yeah, incredible. against incredible the Americans. Numbers. And these loss rates were even higher in the end of 44.
0: And it's completely unsustainable. And you're sending up these new new pilots who got haven't got enough training, haven't got enough hours in their logbooks against people whose training. To, I mean, the Allied the stat. I mean, it's interesting because in 1940, I think. You know, a, a Battle of Britain Spitfire pilot, he's joining the fight with 150, 170 hours in his logbook. A Luftwaffe pilot has a similar kind of number. But by 1944, an American or British pilot would have 350 hours yeah, before they start. That's, that's completely true. Whereas a Luftwaffe
2: has about 100. I mean, there, there can be no discussion that the Western Allied air forces were way superior to the German air force in 44, But... I have to say, I did some calculations on the loss rates of both sides, and I was quite astonished to see that in 44, until the invasion and also during the invasion, the kill-loss ratio of the German fighters is nearly one to one. Hmm. So every time they uh, shot down a um, Western Allied airplane, they lost one. Hmm. Yeah, But uh, the, the real deal breaker is the invasion, I would say. Because yeah. after the invasion, they lose three fighter airplanes for one kill. Wow. Yeah, so, so the real decline is only, to my astonishment, after the invasion. Until the invasion, it's yeah worse. But after that, it's really catastrophic.
0: And their aircraft are not, you, you might be getting more numbers, but the quality is not. Getting much better, is it? It's not improving particularly. It
2: depends. It depends, it depends yeah, because because the, because the black man can do a lot. You know, I I found um, a competition between the black men to polish the airplanes for fifty kilometers per hour or more. Hmm. So if you had a black man which was really good and did a lot of uh, carrying for the airplane and the hull and the wings, a black man is what a ground yeah ground ground. Um, it was called the Schwarzen Männer because they were always um, black by oil <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> right, yeah. yes. anyway um, and, and the, if you had a pla- good black man then maybe your airplane flew 30 kilometers per hour more also <laughs> it's it's the same with the Americans when yeah. they polish their airplanes yeah, yeah. yeah? and um, I, I read the memoirs of a young pilot called Jung was his surname I think his first name is Robert I don't know for sure um he told it like this. He said, oh, I will get this BF109G14AS, so it's for high yeah. flight, yeah, AS, with the AS engine of the DB605, and this was really a fine machine, really polished, really clear, and it was one of the fast, fastest planes of the whole squadron, you know. <laughs> yes. So it really depends on, yes. on, 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 also on the unit, not only on the production, but also on the unit, right. yeah. And if you if you read some stories of fighter aces, they prefer to have a good black man which was able to deal with the aircraft very well, to care for the aircraft, to have it in a good shape for good performances. And of course, the, there were also differences uh, in the production quality. So uh, not every airplane was able to reach the maximum speed. And of course, sometimes it was for some airplanes possible to fly faster than the nominal speed. Sure. yeah. Especially true for the Russian airplanes, which had a really wide range, because they had, especially in 41, 42, big quality issues right. you know, during the retreat. Yep. So, um, But I think 10% it's the most extreme thing I have found. So 10% wow. more or less. It's the most extreme and it's only for Soviet planes.
0: But the bottom line is Luftwaffe fighter pilots, they're used and abused, aren't they? I mean, they're really put upon yeah, They're the glamour boys at the start of the war. Yeah, I mean, but it
2: depends. You have some somebody like Adolf Galland, who was a really important figure for the German fighter pilots in World War II, because he was the general of the fighters for most of the time. And of course, uh, this guy did already some politics, because he was a right-ranking right officer as general. He was mm-hmm. the youngest officer, no, the youngest general in the Hule Wehrmacht mm-hmm. with 28. And he had a little bit a coalition with Erhard Milch yep. to produce more fighter airplanes. Yeah. So I wouldn't say he was only used and abused, but when it comes to the younger fighter pilots, yeah, that's what I'm talking were, about. The yeah, fighter yeah, pilot, yeah, yeah, really. then, then of course, yeah, that's true.
0: Uh, well, Jens, thank you so much for this. I mean, it's it's it, it's fascinating, and um, it's really good that you've done all this this new work. And you know, in the Second World War, there's an awful lot of people just sort of certain aspects of it which a next generation of historians just take for granted and and what's really good about what you've done is you've actually looked at records afresh taken a step backwards and produced genuinely new work on this and and I think that's really important and it's really good that you're that, that there is this new work still coming through so um, great to talk about it thanks for Talking to me. Thanks for bearing with me on the technical issues, and um, looking forward to seeing you. We have Waste Fest in the summer.
2: Me too. I have to thank. <laughs>